Hi, this is Garrett Wong. I played Ensign Harry Kim on Voyager, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 18 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we are going to be looking at Richard Matheson's career as a writer of books that were turned into movies on the whole. This is our recap, Part 10 in the series. Uh, But before we get started, let's uh, touch on the Parsec Awards, which we just went to uh, down in... Uh, Atlanta at Dragon Con. We were nominated for uh, Best Speculative Fiction Fan or News Podcast Specific. The winner was uh, Rebel Force Radio, which is by Jimmy Mack and Jason Swank. But yeah, it it was still uh, great to go to the show and to um, uh, meet uh, a couple people from both uh, Two Minute Time Lord and Doctor Who Verity. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was fun to be there, you know, to hear Chris Gore read your name. I mean, that's pretty, pretty cool. You can't can't really ask for anything more than that. So uh, congrats to Rebel Force Radio and uh, thanks to the Parsec Awards and everyone else for um, uh, nominating us or shortlisting us or whatever you want to call it. And if you want to hear a little bit more about uh, our experience at Dragon Con, check out uh this week's episode of Commentary Track Stars Off Topic over on CommentaryTrackStars.com. So look for that there. All right. As soon as the ceremony ended, I looked at my watch and I saw that uh, we were only a half an hour away from a panel that was going on in another hotel about uh, Richard Matheson and his career. So we hightailed it over there in order to see uh, some people, uh, their names I don't remember, but they were uh, various authors and and, uh, writers for magazines and stuff like that who uh, knew about Matheson or knew Matheson personally. There was one guy in particular who had interviewed him a bunch of times and even met him, you know, at his house and stuff like that. And he had a lot of information about Richard Matheson, and we sort of took the opportunity to uh, get the inside scoop on some of the things that we're going to be talking about this week. But uh, let's just start at the beginning and and work our way up. Uh, The first novel that he wrote uh, was in 1953. It was called Someone is Bleeding. Now, what did you think about that? It was a a piece of detective fiction, um, no real uh, horror or sci-fi elements involved in it, you know, almost more uh, Chandler-esque than anything. Which is interesting uh, well, because one of the things that, that this guy said was that in addition to being influenced by the science fiction and horror writers at the time, such as Bradbury, he was also influenced by people like Hammett and uh, Chandler. And I think you can see that in a lot of his work, but especially here in his early stuff where it is kind of like crime fiction. Sure, on the the, the textual level, sure, but it's also very clearly a horror novel. Someone is Beating is basically a monster book. It's a movie. It's a, it's a book about a monster. The movie is definitely a movie, a movie about a monster. There's a monster. It just happens to be a completely like normal human being from a physical standpoint. She's just crazy mm-hmm. in a very weird way. Yeah. So what did you think of Someone is Bleeding? Um, it's, you know, it's well written. It's a good read. It's, uh, not, it's, not, it's not like nearly as good as Matheson ended up doing. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I didn't think it was very good at all, really. Um, I mean, some of the stuff in there was interesting in terms of the style and everything, but on the whole, I thought that uh, the characters lacked motivation and um, the story was kind of flimsy. Um, but 21 years later, uh, it was adapted into a movie by George Lautner called Icy Breasts. What did you think about That's that? That's the translation, though. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Le Seine de Gloss, I think. Uh, you know, um, it's it's not great. Yeah, I didn't think it was very good either. It seemed like kind of a surface-level version of someone is bleeding. Uh, you know, what little subtext the, the book had, which I found to be interesting, was lost here. Uh, and it became sort of like just a a series of, of events, you know, motivated more by plot than anything else, and the plot was pretty weak, so. All right, so moving on, a year later, Matheson wrote the novel I Am Legend, which was a vampire story about um, a, a guy who was essentially the last man on Earth trying to fight off the vampires, post-apocalyptically and whatnot. So so what did you think about I Am Legend? I think I mentioned it in the episode. That's definitely my favorite of Matheson's novels. I think it's his best novel. There's There are too many good things about it to go into, but it's basically um, uh, unbelievably amazing. Um, I, I would agree that I Am Legend is Matheson's best novel. I really liked uh, the idea of um, approaching uh, this material, you know, vampires, which is generally based in the fantasy realm, uh, and looking at uh, scientific explanations for all of those fantasy elements that are usually found in, in other uh, vampire stories. I also thought it was a really good uh, depiction of a post-apocalyptic world and um, a guy living alone in that uh, in environment. And, um, yeah, I, I, it, really, it really sort of uh, packed a punch in a lot of ways. This book has been adapted three times uh, for the screen, the first one came 10 years after the fact, and that was uh, The Last Man on Earth, which was written by Matheson himself and directed by, um, well, I guess a number of people. It's kind of vague as to who is actually the, uh, the guy. But the credited director, uh, at least for the American um, version, was Sidney Salkow. It was a, a low-budget version starring Vincent Price, and I would say that it is probably the closest to uh, the, the, the book. That being said, I think that the production value really kind of killed this movie, and in the end, it's, it's not very good. I really don't get that. It, I, I never, it never felt low-budget to me. It's not a big story. To me, what I see when I watch this movie is that I'm watching a movie. And uh, I can never buy into this reality because it feels like I'm watching a movie. And maybe that's not the filmmaker's fault, although I think that there are some choices that they could have made which would have made for a better movie. But See, that's interesting because that's exactly how I feel about The Omega Man. Well, The Omega Man was made seven years after Last Man on Earth in 1971. It was directed by Boris Segal and it starred Charlton Heston. It took some great liberties with the story, and I thought that it was really uh, actually pretty stupid. So that that was kind of a failure as well. Um, and then in 2007, Francis Lawrence made the big-budget version of I Am Legend called I Am Legend with Will Smith. Yeah. What did you think about that one? It has, in a lot of ways, sort of resolved a lot of problems with the book, but um, the theatrical ending is so abysmal, I, I'm, I am reluctant to give it any praise. 
Yeah, I guess for me, I, I would look at it more as the, the alternate ending being the real ending and the theatrical one being just sort of an artifact of, uh, you know, a few months uh, when, when this movie played in theaters. Uh, but but it's, so, it's so insulting to the novel. It's so insulting to the intent of the novel that, that to me, the idea that Francis Lawrence's name was on it, uh, it, it makes him look bad to me. Yeah, there's so much stuff that goes on with the studio and everything like that. I mean, the fact that Francis Lawrence was like, uh, I have another ending which is better and I want people to see it and here's an alternate version of the movie. That to me suggests that, you know, I mean, I can't hold the other thing against him. But if you look at the movie on the whole, I I do think that it was quite good and I would recommend it to um, anyone, really. I don't think it's as good as the book, but some of the stuff that they were doing in there was really interesting and um i do feel that if you if you if you somehow like extracted elements from i am legend and and put those pieces together alongside uh, last man on earth you could theoretically have something that's as good as the book well when we were there uh one of the thing one of the people who was on the panel who had interviewed Matheson said that he considered the uh, movie versions of I Am Legend to be the big disappointment of his career. Matheson uh, was very fond of the book, as is everyone, and the idea that uh, no one... I don't think vampires like it. No one had been able to adapt it uh, successfully for the big screen uh, was something which bothered him quite a bit. And, um, you know, I, I, I guess I can see that, this guy said that when he uh, asked Matheson about I Am Legend, I guess off the record, um, Matheson said that he thought that the movie was very well made but didn't have a whole lot to do with his book. Matheson kind of thought that uh, the big problem with Last Man on Earth was Vincent Price, and when he heard that Charlton Heston had been cast in Omega Man, uh, he thought that that was perfect casting. It's just that the movie itself... Uh, really had nothing to do with his book. So he said that, you know, if if he could have taken Charlton Heston and put him into Last Man on Earth, that would have been the version of the movie that he would like to have seen. So in 1956, Richard Matheson wrote The Shrinking Man, um, which was adapted twice uh, into movies, which we'll get to in a second. But what did you think of the book, The Shrinking Man? Well, I, in the episode we talk about it, but it's it's you know it's a stupid idea for a story. Um, shrinking, in beginning, these are not solid concepts for science fiction, and they are so fuzzy that it doesn't it doesn't hold up under any sort of scrutiny. And in the story, in the novel, there's a lot of stuff that 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 goes on to do with interpersonal relationships and the character going through things, and. A lot of that becomes non-existent towards the end of the story, and the story is also sort of like it bounces back and forth in, in time, so that when he's shrinking and he's still roughly human-sized, things are interesting. But all of the stuff with him being really small and fighting with spiders and cats, those are really boring, and um, they all seem really fake. Yeah, I didn't like the the book either. I, I agree that the idea of a shrinking man is kind of ridiculous, and I think the way that they handled it was even more ridiculous. And um, I, I think that uh, the book suffered from uh, kind of a large chunk of incoherent action, where there was so much uh, explaining of what 
he was doing from his scale that he had to come up with all of these new terms to to um, apply to things which we know about on a on on an everyday basis, like a couch or well, there's know. there's a million descriptions of small things like a paperclip and the words colossal, humongous, mm-hmm. massive, towering, but and- also like you know, um, folded piece of metal. You know, and then instead of just saying paperclip, 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 he says, you know, the folded piece of metal, the folded piece of metal, the folded piece of metal. And it really just at some point, you know, you're you're trying to keep track of so much stuff that you can't even tell what what's going on with the action. And that seems to be the one thing as we look at Matheson's career that he's really, really weak at. And that's action. So a year after the book came out, uh, the first Matheson uh, movie based on one of his novels was released, and that was The Incredible Shrinking Man, which he wrote himself and which was directed by Jack Arnold. Yeah. Uh, What did you think about the movie? I can't stand that movie. I I really have a hard time with a lot of um, miniaturization stories, uh, and I, I can't think of many that work at all. And this one doesn't really work at all, and there are a lot of problems with it, but uh, probably the main problem is that the book deals with the, um, the the social, like, metaphor of a man shrinking. Like, he's a guy who's losing his significance. He's literally shrinking, and it's, you know, a metaphor for a lot of, you know, paranoid fears of, of you know, the, the upper middle class white male losing his authority and power in a changing reality. Women are getting more authority. Um, minorities are becoming, you know, recognized as, you know, regular people, as significant as the upper middle class white male. And the upper middle class white male shrinking is a very paranoid thing. And part of it is that shrinking isn't really necessarily a bad thing. There are different ways of looking at the world and being smaller doesn't mean you're less important. Yeah, I don't like the movie either. Um, I would say that it's better than the book, but just because uh, it's better at uh, conveying what's going on in the story, uh, I can see the book being deeper and everything like that. But the book is just so frustrating to read because uh, it's so hard to read. I mean, The Incredible Shrinking Man, it doesn't really have much more to offer. It's just sort of uh, a telling of the story in a much more coherent way. But it's a stupid story, so you know that doesn't really have much to offer either. Um, what about the Incredible Shrinking Woman, which was the movie that Joel Schumacher made back in 1981 with Lily Tomlin as uh, the the shrinking woman? Um, you know, it's a, it's a it's a it's a situation where you know you you're making a movie out of something and you don't really need to be making this movie. It's not motivated by anything other than possibly being humorous, and. It's not as funny as it would need to be in order to be deserving of being made. Well, I mean, I can see some of the things that they were trying to do in terms of the message or whatever. You know, they were trying to look at a woman's place in society and especially the housewife and stuff. Mm -hmm. All that being said, I I don't think that, that it really had much to say about that stuff. And because of that, it's not really worth watching because it certainly isn't funny. And they do take a lot of liberties with the story, which I guess is to be expected. But um, well, that's perfectly fine and valid. It's just that uh, the, what the direction that they choose to go in is not any more compelling than 
the direction that the original uh, source material wanted to go in. You know, as we talked about uh, in that episode, uh, at the time of Matheson's death, he was working on an adaptation of The Shrinking Man for the screen once again, this time with his son, Richard Matheson Jr., or R.C., I guess as he's known to his friends. And uh, when we were there, I asked the the panel whether or not they thought this movie would ever see the light of day now that uh, Matheson... Uh, is gone, and they seem to think that there was some hope for that because R.C. Matheson uh, really uh, looks to be the keeper of his father's flame and and a, a, a skilled writer in his own right. And because of that, uh, a lot of people think that that uh, the Matheson legacy will be uh, carried on, and uh, the final Matheson movie may be seen. So. That might be something to look forward to. 1959, Richard Matheson wrote two novels that were turned into movies, the first of which was A Stir of Echoes, which was about a guy who is hypnotized at a party and gains some sort of uh, supernatural mental abilities. So what did you think of A Stir of Echoes, the book? I think it is a perfectly well-written book. Um, The approach to... The question of ghosts in the afterlife is is handled interestingly, but um, it's kind of a played out form. It's kind of a it's kind of a difficult thing to do these days. There are too many ghost stories. There are too many stories about that. the uh, The hypnotism is a good angle uh, for the story when it was written, and nowadays it seems kind of bizarre that people would have have concerns about hypnotism awakening supernatural abilities. Yeah, I, I uh, guess I didn't really look at it from that angle, uh, but just reading the book as a as a story, I thought it was really well done. Um, it's definitely up there towards the top of of my list of of Matheson books that we covered. I, I found that the the character to be very likable and um, his journey to be very very compelling. Um, I did not necessarily feel that way about the movie, which came out 40 years later, that was written and directed by David Capp. That was called Stir of Echoes, and I found it to be sort of a stripped-down, mean, ugly version of the book. I I, I was not fond of the movie at all. Uh, What what did you think about the movie? Um, I don't know where you get mean and ugly. That's kind of weird to me. I didn't think the movie was mean and ugly. I thought it was inexplicably Bostonian. But um, uh, it it seemed like a, a perfectly decent adaptation of the story. I mean, they changed elements around in order to make it fit into the context. But that seems reasonable. And, and uh, I think the like a lot of things that in the mov- that are in the movie that are changed are sort of insignificantly changed. Sort of like changed mainly to just fit slightly better into the the time frame that the, the story takes place in and how they can do it in a movie form. I, I think it works perfectly well. I think it works as well as this, the the novel, and I don't think that the, the novel is particularly inspired. It's an interesting approach to the ghost story, and I think that both versions handle it rather intelligently. Well, I guess Matheson agrees with you on this one. One of the things that we learned at the panel was that uh, Matheson was very fond of, of the feature film version of Stir of Echoes and uh, considers that to be probably the best movie adaptation of one of his works. So later that year, Matheson wrote another book called Ride the Nightmare, which was about a guy whose past catches up with him 
Uh, he's trying to uh, live out his perfect suburban life with his family and some people who uh, were part of a, a job that went wrong in the past or, or, or something along those lines come back to seek revenge. What did you think about Ride the Nightmare? It's an interesting book. There, there are times where if you're critical about it, you'll think this particular moment is unmotivated and it's only happening in order to keep the story going, uh, which is why there were times where it felt like 24 to me. Uh, but it felt like 24 with an extremely deep look at you know the, 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 the existence of a person and the concept of, of moral transgressions and forgiveness and existence in a world of laws and lawlessness and... A lot of stuff is interesting about that, uh, and it is it is a good read despite the the, the surface level being in some way kind of contrived. I pretty much agree with what you said. I, I enjoyed the the book quite a bit too. Uh, I think that it was cool to see him return to the non supernatural stuff and tell just like a good piece of crime fiction. And I thought that uh, the book was very compelling and um, exciting. And uh, it did have a lot to say about, um, you know, people and, you know, them dealing with the past and and trying to to become better people and and all that stuff. In 1970, Terrence Young made a a version of the book as a movie with Charles Bronson called Cold Sweat. And uh, that movie was not very good at all. It was really sort of revamped to become an action vehicle for Bronson. And by doing that, uh, it lost a lot of uh, the um, uh, subtext, which is what made the movie, or which, which is what made the book so great. So in 1971, after a 12-year hiatus, um, Matheson returned to writing novels with Hell House, which is a haunted house story about a group of individuals who go to a haunted house and uh, try to investigate what exactly is going on in there. So what do you think about Hell House? It's it's a haunted house story. It feels like a lot of haunted house stories. It's a well-written haunted house story. Um, but ultimately, you've, you've seen the story in movies a million times. You've probably read a few books of haunted house stories. You're probably extremely well versed in all of the the elements of the story that this deals with there are a few moments of 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 interesting deviation from the norm uh mainly just the way that matheson handles things he he has a unique approach to the subject of the supernatural and he handles it well but it is a haunted house story that's basically it yeah i mean one of the things that we learned at the panel was uh that um Matheson's inspiration for writing Hell House was because he was very fond of Robert Wise's The Haunting, even though he had hated the book that it was based on. So he kind of wanted to make a book which would um, uh, do justice to Robert Wise's movie, I guess. You know, sometimes you write something inspired by something, you know, and sometimes you write something in response to something. I think that, uh, like, the story is, you know, that that Tolkien wrote The Lord of the Rings in response to the ring cycle. You know, like, some people do things because something offends them, and sometimes they do it because something inspires them. Apparently, this was a case of him doing one thing because of both. Mm -hmm. I, um didn't really like the book all that much. I thought it kind of uh, meandered and and stuff. Um, Well, it's a ghost story. I think it could have been better if it was a bit tighter. 
but on the whole, not very good. Now, two years later, he wrote uh, a movie um, called The Legend of Hell House, which was based on this book and directed by John Huff. And um, it really feels kind of like a Disney-fied version of his book, in a sense. You know, Not something which very Disney-fied. No, but something which was so uh, graphic in, in terms of both um, violence and uh, sex, you know, being stripped down into something which was actually... At the time, rated PG. It was touchstoned. It's kind of weird. So, um, what did you think of Legend of Hell House? Um, if you enjoyed the book, Hell House, and you see the movie, and you're not frustrated, then I don't know what you are. Maybe you're one of those machines that kills ghosts. Yeah. Because uh, the movie is, is a very weakened version. It's like a very anemic version of the book. Yeah. A lot of things are faithfully kept intact. Um, in a way that makes you wonder why they didn't just change it to something better for movies. Yeah. Well, there was a lot of talk at this panel of people wanting to see a faithful adaptation of Hell House and whether or not that's something we would ever see. And the general consensus is that, you know, while we would want to see that, we're pretty much the only people who would want to see that. And if someone did try adapting it into a movie... Today, it would probably not go well. So 1975, uh, Matheson decided to go in a different direction with his career and start writing some more uh, romantic stories, the first of which was Bid Time Return, about a guy who uh, sees a photo of an actress who's been dead for 75 years and comes up with the idea that it's his destiny to go back in time and fall in love with her. And then he does. So what did you think of Bid Time? <laughs> that is how it goes. What did you think of Bid Time Returns? Uh, returns? Bedtime Return. The sequel could be called Bedtime Returns. Yeah. It is a story that is as weird as it sounds, and while it might sound interesting because it's so weird, it's not. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that <laughs> pretty much everything in it, from the time travel to the romance, was handled really terribly in sort of a cartoonish uh, teenage fantasy type of way. I disagree about the time travel. And um, It is handled much more intelligently than a guy arbitrarily building a time machine out of a car. So yeah, I, I, I was not impressed by the book, and I wasn't really impressed by the movie either, which was 1980's Somewhere in Time, directed by Jeannot's work and starring uh, Christopher Reeve. What did you think about the movie Somewhere in Time? Well, apparently some people love this movie. They're passionately in love with this movie, and they think it's absolutely brilliant, and I don't understand them. That seemed to be a thing at the panel. Uh, a lot yeah. of people, a lot of the panelists were saying that this was their favorite of Madison's yeah. works. I can, I could get that. Like, I could, I could see, like, latching onto it when I was a lot younger, because it is a very particular kind of weird story, and it does have that sort of um, that weird, like, obsessive quality where... Uh, somebody could, you know, really latch onto it because it is particular. There really isn't another thing exactly like it. Uh, unfortunately, the story is largely about um, a guy walking around in the past, and uh, they didn't have the internet back then, so it was pretty dull. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the book "Somewhere in Time" and the movie "Some" or the book "Bedtime Return" and the movie "Somewhere in Time" are uh, pretty similar. You can call it somewhere in time. They do now. Yeah. You can't even get, I don't even know if you can get a thing that's called bedtime return anymore. Right. And um, if you like one, you'll probably like the other, but uh, I don't really like either. 
1978, uh, Matheson wrote the second book in his uh, romance transcending blank duology, uh, and that was What Dreams May Come, the novel which he considers to be his best. Whereas Bid Time Return is about love transcending time, What Dreams May Come is about love transcending death. So what did you think about What Dreams May Come? I think What Dreams May Come is a fantastic book. And it is, um, I believe, the the best book that Richard Matheson wrote. And I could explain why that's different from his best novel, but that would take like 40 minutes. And it's definitely up there for me as well. Um, I, I thought that his portrayal of the afterlife in particular was very interesting. And I would put it up near the top. Definitely not as good as I Am Legend, but in the same... Uh, level as stir of echoes and ride the nightmare i think but uh yeah I, I would definitely recommend reading this book the movie not so much 20 years later vincent ward directed what dreams may come starring robin williams and what were your thoughts on that oh as i said it's 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 fantastic there were changes made to the basic story uh and i think all those changes were very good it's a fan, it's a fantastically broken movie. It's totally broken, but it is very fascinating, very interesting, and totally worth watching. And I know you hate it, and I think that's crazy. Yeah, I was uh, bored to tears by the movie, and most of the changes that they made I thought were incredibly stupid, and I did hate it in um, uh, a very special way. <laughs> but uh, it's it may not be the worst movie on this list, but it's the one that I hated the most. And apparently on this movie, Matheson agrees with me. The one guy at the panel was, was saying that uh, he hates this movie. It's probably his biggest disappointment outside of I Am Legend, or right up there with I Am Legend. And uh, it's, it's not, not well liked by Matheson. So any final thoughts on Richard Matheson as a novelist or a uh, movie writer or anything? Not as a novelist or as a movie writer, because that's like a tiny little sliver of, of his overall career and life. And I like the most interesting thing about Richard Matheson is that he did a little bit of everything. And my favorite chapter in the Matheson life is when he was hired by Rod Serling to work on The Twilight Zone, the first season of The Twilight Zone, because that is a fantastic moment in history where Rod Serling was creating something that would eventually become an incredibly important artifact of history. And he had open submissions and thousands and thousands of scripts poured in, and they were all crap. And he said, I'm going to need a couple people to come in and write. And he hired Richard Matheson and Charles Beaumont. And Matheson wrote like a bunch of episodes for the first year of The Twilight Zone, and some of them were absolutely incredible. Yeah, I mean, well, I think that I Am Legend is probably his best work. I am also very fond of The Twilight Zone. That was my intro to Matheson as a writer and, uh, you know, things like Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. I still find to be absolutely amazing. It's been fun talking about Richard Matheson today, but this isn't the only thing we've been talking about on Trek FM this week. So here's a look at what you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, The Orb... Great Cisco episodes. I was definitely channeling Cisco, but it's it's a great episode to watch that that passion come out of him. That he is a passionate captain, you know, and man. The ready room. The devil in the dark. Wouldn't there be a point if they can go through rocks so easily that they would have 
depleted that entire planet of its resources in the last 50,000 years? Decade. Voyager STO. Well, Voyager's pretty much the only series that hasn't had much content. Well, yeah, think about it. You've got loads from the original series, loads from the next generation, and you've got pretty much all of the main ones from Deep Space Nine, apart from the Volta. To the journey! Kes. Kind of like the reverse of a kangaroo. It's like this pouch on her back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That would be kind of unusual. It would be the most unusual maternity uniform ever. Commentary, Trek stars. What dreams may come? It's kind of like 1984. And just like in 1984, like, that guided tour is more interesting than most books that have an extremely compelling story. Warp 5. The Augments Arc. You know, and, and as you say, all of this was about, from his perspective, trying to improve humanity and thinking he was doing the right thing. And he was was not prepared to do absolutely anything for it. He wasn't prepared to kill another human being. Trek News and Views. A taste of Armageddon. So basically, some scientist goes to command and say, look, I've, built, I've developed this new weapon. No, you can't do that. It's not in the rules. Literary Treks. Missions End. The question is, do you feel like Section 31 is overused? Everyone wants to use Section 31, and so they just keep popping up in every story, and I think sometimes it does a disservice to the idea of Section 31. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new shows for you every day, and you'll find them on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune, and you can stream and download files from the website. Just visit trek.fm slash pd for podcast directory to get all the links. So that's about it for Richard Matheson. Finally, we're going to be able to move on to what we were planning to do before Richard Matheson, which is Ronald D. Moore, and looking at his career as a television showrunner. We will be back next week with an episode that we recorded a long time ago with Matt from The Orb, talking about Ronald D. Moore's work in Star Trek. As always, you can find us on our website, CommentaryTrackStars.com, where we do our other show, Commentary Track Stars, or you can find us on Twitter at ComTrackStars, or email us at ComTrackStars at gmail.com, or you can find us over on Trek.fm, where you can leave a comment uh, by this episode, or on the forum, or anything like that. So, that's about it for Richard Matheson, and we will be back next week to talk about Ronald D. Moore. <laughs>